So, Rachel. Yeah. When a destructive space vessel is spotted approaching Earth, Admiral Kirk resumes command of the Starship Enterprise in order to seize, examine, and hopefully stop it before it destroys the Earth. Ooh, Admiral Kirk. What do you think you're going to get? He's got a higher position now, more of a desk job, maybe? Mm-hmm. The current captain of the Enterprise is incapacitated or evil, so Kirk's convinced to take command with the original crew plus a couple of new ones, maybe. Mm-hmm. Probably an alien. They will stop it before it destroys Earth, but at what cost? <laughs> Someone will probably lose the love of their life and there'll be tension between the old crew, but they'll pull together as the crisis increases. Let's see what we got. Rachel watches Star Trek. Welcome to the first of our Star Trek movies. It's Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yes. Now, normally we do the synopsis first, but I feel since we're moving into a new phase of Star Trek that we should talk a bit about how this movie came to be. Okay. So since Star Trek was doing well in the 70s in syndication, Ron Berry began working on a script for a feature film in 1975, and it was called The God Thing. He's always trying to work God into stuff with Star Trek. Yes, or God-like things or challenging the idea of God. Mm -hmm. Paramount didn't like what he was doing, so he had to do a lot of rewrites, but a lot of the script is actually still in the motion picture. He got his comeuppance then because he was always making writers do a million rewrites. <laughs> How do you oh, like yeah. it, Gene? The film was put on hold in 1976 to try and get a new television series going, which was tentatively called Star Trek Phase 2. Hmm. I'm tempted to get into that, but maybe that's something we could do as bonus content in the near future. Yeah, that'd be better. I'll only touch upon it briefly here and there when it becomes necessary. What with the success of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Paramount was keen on making a Star Trek movie, so Star Trek Phase 2 got shelved. All right. On March 28th, 1978, Paramount held the largest press conference since announcing the Ten Commandments, <laughs> introducing the plan to make the new Star Trek movie with director Robert Weiss, the Academy Award-winning film director of West Side Story and Sound of Music. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. okay. Yay. I'm for this project. I think they should go ahead. <laughs> It's a great idea. Great timing. You don't remember talking about this when we did West Side Story? I've only got one brain, sir. Okay. But one of my favorite movies that he directed, again, was The Day the Earth Stood Still. So he's got some sci-fi chops. Yeah. Now, Dennis Clark was to write the script to make sure Spock was in there, but he hated Roddenberry, mm. who wanted sole writing credit on the script. Mm. They used the pilot of Star Trek Phase Two, which was called In Thy Image, as the basis for the script for the motion picture. Oh, okay. But the rewriting took a long time and the producers and Shatner and Nimoy kept giving notes on the script. (laughs) Of course they did. But they finally got something workable done by September of 1978. A great year. uh, One of the greatest years. (laughs) Not a very long time to shoot, edit, or do special effects. Oh. Because this movie came out in 1979. Wow. I expect a few people suffered in that case then. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it wasn't easy going. Yeah, let's hope it was worth it for them. Any more talk about this stuff will be too nitty gritty. And I think as we discuss this movie and the synopsis, things will come up and we'll we'll get into 
other more minutiae. Yeah, and we'll get some great comments on these episodes. I'm sure that'll add a lot to it. And some of what we're talking about now will play into various of the other movies, so yeah. we can always come back to it then. Of imagine. course. Yeah. So let's get into our synopsis. Now, we watched the director's cut of the film, and it has been a long time since I've watched it. Was that a lot longer than the original? Was it much different, do you know? Uh, I think there was some editing differences, some musical changes. There might have been some special effects fixes as well. It looked really good. It was very well done, visually speaking. I was never really a fan of this movie, and I don't think I'd have seen it since I was in my early 20s. And I just remember this one being boring. Mm. And it is in a way... You asked me as we were getting ready to watch it how much out of 10 I was looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you say? Zero. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. When this movie began, it's very old school. The movie starts with a moving star field and an overture of the new theme song. You know, the... And that was it. Yeah. This goes on for several minutes. No credits. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I, I respect that. I mean, that's going for it, isn't it? Yeah. They like their music. They've got their effect. And that's enough. And it's Jerry Goldsmith is the composer who has done millions of things. He's, well done, Jezza. Yeah. He, <laughs> Great work. Maybe it's because I was marching for the first hour of watching it because I was trying to get my steps in. Yes. <laughs> Since we went on holiday, I quite like being more active. So I might have had extra oxygen in my brain. I was feeling it. Uh, good. I wasn't impatient at all. That's excellent news. Thanks. <laughs> Once the overture is finished, they show mm-hmm. some credits and then we get into the actual movie. Uh, it begins with three Klingon battlecruisers patrolling an area when they stumble onto a huge, and I mean huge, blue glowing cloud. Mm. Now, do you recognize that lead Klingon? <laughs> No way, there's so much makeup going on. <laughs> we finally got to the bumpy head phase. Yes, underneath all that makeup is Mark Leonard. Ah, okay. Spock's yeah, dad. He's back. The Klingons, they've really gone for it with them this time. And this resonated with people. People loved the Klingons. They've taken some of the old elements, the hair, the colour. Did they kind of have that shape of collar before? Not sure. No, not No really. sparkle, no sashes this time. So the Klingons, not knowing what to do, decide to fire torpedoes at it, but it does nothing. They try to retreat, but these blue energy balls shoot out and shock them and then make them disappear. It seems to give the impression that they're being broken down into smaller bits. Ooh. Now, while this is happening, a Federation listening station, Epsilon 9, gets the Klingons' distress call and they are able to see them being zapped. Are they just there to listen out for signals in space or something? Also, they're close to the Klingon border. So yeah. they're just making sure the Klingons aren't doing anything tricky, Oh, I guess. Right. Or maybe it's scientific. They don't really explain. Hmm. But they witness the destruction of the Klingon ships. The commander of the listening post asks where this cloud is heading. And of course, it's going towards Earth. Now, what do you think about these costumes that you see of the Starfleet people? Because they look very different yeah they're a much more traditional view of the future neutral tones kind of beige fawn Mm -hmm. and they're all in jumpsuits so it's utilitarian which it was before Mm -hmm. comfortable stretch did a little research on it Mm -hmm. roddenberry believed that throwaway clothes were the future of the industry and this idea was incorporated into the costumes i'm not sure what they mean by that i think you just wear it once and then it gets recycled or destroyed yeah like a decorating suit i guess they don't look like they're made of paper throwaway material no, though but, but he was right we do have a big problem with the throwaway fashion yes industry at the mm-hmm. moment yeah, yeah. 
And did you know the fashion industry is producing more carbon emissions than the aviation industry? That does not surprise me. It's terrible. Yeah. William Ware Theus was too busy to work on the film. So theatre designer Robert Fletcher was selected. Mm. Out with man-made fibres, too hard to sew. Out with miniskirts, too sexist. Mm -hmm. Out with colour, too garish. In with penis tip revealing jumpsuits (laughs) in heavy spandex (laughs) with metal belt clasp in neutral tones. I love a onesie, but I wouldn't receive guests in one, let alone go to work. Yeah bit revealing aren't it, it sure is boy you can comfy though you can see what what's going on downstairs for sure <laughs> the actors must have really hit the gym once they realized these were the costumes uh-huh in tos we had colors to denote medical security etc here it's just the badges what do you think of that i don't like it you missed the color i missed the color yeah yeah it wasn't needed was it no but it just looks neat yeah <laughs> There's a scene later on where you see the whole crew together and it's so blah. Yeah. I do like it better that they've all got the same symbol on their badge. Yes. But with a different colour to show which area they work in. Yes. I miss the colour as well, though. They have gold braid on the sleeves for rank as before. And that looked a bit antiquated compared to the new design because that was the same as the old one. Yeah, yeah. They also had a Class B t-shirt alternative with shoulder boards to indicate rank. But that seems a bit incongruous on a t-shirt. Are you relaxing or not? <laughs> Does someone need to know what rank you are? Well, I guess if you're on duty on a ship, people need to know where they stand. And so if some yeah, guy but comes if up... if you're on duty, don't have your t-shirt on. That's way too casual. Like in the Navy, they've got different types of uniforms that they could wear while they're on duty. So... Yeah, it's for practicality, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But what? the temperature would never change on there. No. Shoes were built into the trouser legs. Did you notice that? Oh, no, I didn't. Each shoe sewn by hand by an Italian shoemaker, which took a lot of time and money. Oh, my God, yes. There was a variety of field jackets, leisure wear and space suits completed before many actors had been cast. Many roles were filled by considering how well the actor would fit into the existing costume. Wow. That must have been the extras, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Red, black and gold brocade found in the old storerooms at Paramount was woven with real gold and silver wrapped around silk thread. The resulting costume was used for a Betelgeusian. 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 Yes, it's Betelgeuse. (laughs) Ambassador. And at a price of $10,000 for the fabric alone was the most expensive costume ever worn by a Hollywood extra. Wow. (laughs) What? That's insane. Somebody needed to have their butts kicked on this thing. That was silly. They're just shooting money out of their buttholes <laughs> well, here. it was free because they found it in the lot. And the Italian shoes thing. Oh, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Come on. Come on. So now makeup for the film was uh, Fred Phillips of Spock's Ears fame. Mm. He was the head makeup artist. The movie marks his 2000th Spock ear. What? Though Phillips had saved the cast of Nimoy's ears, his ears actually had grown. So new molds had to be fabricated. Ha! Told you men's ears grow when they get older. Yeah, okay, whatever. You wouldn't believe me. I still don't believe you. (laughs) Well, While on the small screen, the ears could be used four times since nicks and tears did not show up on television. Nimoy used around three pairs per day during filming. Whoa. His eyebrows were applied hair by hair for proper detail, and it took Nimoy more than two hours to prepare for filming, twice as long as it had for television. Wow. There were 50 aliens for which masks and makeup were needed. Lots of them are extras designed by himself or by Fletcher. Nice to hear that they had a lot of creative input like that. Yeah. There weren't very many alien extras. I would say probably only like 2% of them 
were. Back to the movie. We cut to Planet Vulcan. There are these huge statues, and we see Spock with some long hair, but no beard. <laughs> well, I thought if he was like, I'm in this spiritual place, yeah. I'm not paying attention to my personal upkeep. Right. Have we ever seen a Vulcan with a beard? And that brings us to Star Trek Discovery, where oh. we see Spock with a beard. Oh, okay. The statue foot. The statue foot is bigger than a person. The infinite Vulcan? Yes. These are actual <laughs> statues of giant Spock. Yeah. Life size. It might be giant Spock. <laughs> <laughs> they actually shot this at Yellowstone National Park near the Minerva Hot Springs. They also did some matte painting stuff to make it look more like Vulcan and obviously some post-color correction. Mm. Spock is there with an old Vulcan woman and some of her flunkies. They're there to do the culinar ritual, which will purge him of all of his emotions. Ah. Still on that kick. Oh, he wasn't Vulcan enough already, after all he's been through. Mm. Was it to purge him after spending so much time with humans, do you think? Could be, yeah. Mm. She says, you did it, Spock. Good job. <laughs> and she's going to give him this far out 70s medallion. <laughs> but Spock stops her. He looks up at the sky. Something in space has touched his mind. Why Spock and not any other Vulcan on the planet? I can't believe you're asking, Matt. What's happened to you, Chris? <laughs> well, it just seems like a weird story way to get Spock involved in this. Well, maybe he's sensing the call of the BFG. Oh, it's Kirk and McCoy that he's detecting. Yeah, even though McCoy's not aware of any of it yet. <laughs> yeah, that stuck in my craw immediately. I'm like, why Spock? I, he's not a particularly powerful psychic. Maybe he just cares more. He just cares more. Or he doesn't like the medallion. <laughs> <laughs> Plot-wise, I'm pretty sure that he is the one that detects it just because he's everybody's favorite Vulcan. Yeah. Now, the elder lady mind melts with him. With her super creepy long nails all up in his nose. And she says, you're not ready. And she just drops the medallion on the ground. <gasps> Screw you. You're not to pring, but you're still a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> We zing back to San Francisco, California, Starfleet headquarters. Kirk is now an admiral and he gets out of a tram to meet with Commander Sonic, the Vulcan science officer who will be joining the crew of the Enterprise. Shatner's twinkle is back. But who's this new Spock? We don't want him. <laughs> well, this new Spock uh, provides us with exposition. We find out that the new captain of the Enterprise is Captain Decker. He's played by actor Stephen Collins, who was later on Seventh Heaven, but then also later busted for sexual abuse of underage girls. Oh. Some folks think that Decker is Matt Decker's son, but it's never expressly said in any of the books or anything, but it does say so on Star Trek.com and a couple like encyclopedia books. Oh, that's why his name was so familiar. From the Doomsday Machine. Huh. We find out that Decker has been overseeing the refit of the Enterprise, which is very, very different looking on the inside, but mostly the same on the outside with the same basic structure. But it's white now, not silver. Yes. This is mostly like the Star Trek Phase Two redesigns that they did with just a few changes. The Enterprise is above Earth and dry dock and isn't quite ready for duty. What's a dry dock? Well, for boats, mm. when you take it out of the water. But in this case, why don't they just call it a dock? There yeah. aren't any watery ones, are there? No. No. And it is in space, so technically it's just a dock. Yeah. Why are we fighting over these <laughs> No, we're not. We're agreeing. Uh, sure. Why are we agreeing over these <laughs> things? Oh, Sonak tells Kirk that the Enterprise should be done in 24 hours, but Kirk tells him they have 12. Classic. Everyone watching this in 79 must have been beside themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I remember <laughs> waiting in line as a kid. 
I must have been five years old, six years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we waited outside in the cold, this huge line that went around the theater. And then we went in and everybody was like hooping and hollering. Mm -hmm. Who was with you? was my dad. Obviously, Pat was too little to oh, go. He was a baby mm. at that point. Just being like, whoa, this is People amazing. People were loud about it, were they? Yeah. Super enthusiastic. Super enthusiastic. But I do remember I was pretty bored. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was no Star Wars. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, that's what you had to compare it to. Of course, yeah. yeah. Kirk tells Sonek to meet him on the Enterprise. Kirk meets with Admiral Nagura off screen about what's going on. So after his meeting, Kirk beams up to the orbital office complex and meets up with Scotty, who now has a mustache. He's looking rather spelt and handsome, I think. Yeah. Nice to see him again. So much warmth. Mm, crew, haven't had near enough transition time with all our new equipment. And the engines are not even tested at warp power. And an untried captain. Two and a half years as chief of Starfleet operations may have made me a little stale, but I wouldn't exactly consider myself untried. I gave her back to me, Scotty. Gave her back, sir? I doubt it was that easy with Nagura. You're right. <laughs> well, any man who had managed such a feat, I would not dare disappoint. She'll launch on time, sir, and she'll be ready. So the Enterprise is having issues with its transporters, so they're going to have to take a shuttle over from the offices to the Enterprise. It's very cute. It's a stand-up pod with a big window, so Scotty and Kirk can take in the Enterprise refit for a million eons, <laughs> <laughs> which I quite enjoyed, actually. And wow. I, I was sort of in the headspace of someone seeing it for the first time since the 60s. Yeah. They really luxuriated over the music and showing us the ship through Kirk's eyes. Well, it's a very impressive model mm -hmm. and it seems very realistic compared to the old Enterprise. I mean, they even deal with things like exterior lighting. You're saying they do need lights on the outside? Of course they would. Also, we could see it. How would anybody see it? Why do they need people to see it? That's a good question. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Space is pretty big, so the odds of actually running into another ship seem pretty low. Yeah. It just seemed really detailed. And it kind of irritated me every time you said it was a model. <laughs> I was just in it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you were liking it. They, this does go on, like you said, for a long time. Yep. Just them looking at the Enterprise and, you know, feeling full of love. Yeah. And then more Enterprise and them looking at it. And I thought to myself, this is not moving the plot forward or the characters forward. Mm -hmm. But it was just, welcome back, everybody. Here's the ship, the one of the main characters of the show. Yes. You know, all the introductions of the characters were quite thoughtfully done and there was some time taken over them. But I wouldn't say Uhura got that no, no. or Sulu <laughs> or Chekhov. And it's like, no. oh, there's Uhura. Hi. The BFG did. Yeah, the BFG got a lot of Who attention. Who now includes the Enterprise. It was a good ruse saying that the transporter's not working, which gave them the opportunity to show us the outside of the ship. Right. But that also pays off later, so it wasn't just no. something they decided to do for no. that reason. So Kirk is going to have to break the news to Decker that he's taking command of the Enterprise. Ugh. After they board, we get a good look at the new cargo bay, which is really big and has a lot going on with it. It's mm -hmm. very cool. Scotty's called away down to engineering and Kirk goes up to the bridge. We see Ahura, Sulu and Chekhov and they are happy to see Kirk. Yeah. Nichelle's got such a lovely way of doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's all they let her do most of the time, <laughs> which really makes the most of it. 
She's sporting natural hair now, but cut into an unusual point at the front. I thought that was weird too. Yeah. yeah. She kind of pulls it off. Yeah. It's futuristic or something. Sure. It seems that they all know that Kirk is taking command of the Enterprise, but Decker doesn't. That's a bit Because Sulu says something like, oh, he doesn't know yet, does he? Oh, right. Decker is down in engineering, helping Scotty get the ship ready. Kirk goes down there and we see the new warp core which is a mainstay in the movies and Next Generation and all the television shows. Like, that's what warp cores look like from oh, now on. This is a vertical cylinder of light. Yes. And then there's different levels, so you can go up and down to the higher points of the warp core. All right. I'm getting a bit worried about dilithium mining. <laughs> I think I drifted off a little bit during watching this section. I thought, if you invented something okay. that you could project would lead to the devastation of places because of the resources it would take. Sure. Would you then bury that invention, not release it? Without dilithium, they wouldn't have warp. Yeah. And if they don't have warp, then that means they couldn't really get anywhere. Mm-hmm. But by having it, are they causing the destruction of planets that have dilithium? Well, you can... Not have, now, but maybe... Maybe. You know, if you extrapolate that. In the Star Trek universe, it seems like you would have to do it. You would just try and do it as ethically as possible because mm-hmm. maybe you've got scruples. But yeah. not everybody does. Not the Klingons. Or the Romulans. They don't care about fair trade. Exactly. So they would take it. And then now they've got warp technology and they just take over everything and they enslave all of your people and all the peoples of other planets. Have they independently developed warp technology or have they developed yeah. the technology? The Vulcans didn't do first contact with a civilization until they had warp technology. But I don't know how the Klingons, if they, they stole it or they developed it themselves... Chances are if one person can invent it, someone else can later. Sure. Yeah. So Kirk bluntly breaks it to Decker that he's lost command of mm-hmm. the ship. Decker is ticked and Kirk tells him that he's to remain on as an executive officer Ooh. and is temporarily demoted to commander. Oh, Damn. Man. No couch in it whatsoever. And he's expected to just swallow his pride and be second in command. Yeah. That's an Ice cold lunch. That is an ice cold lunch. But we are at a crisis and the Earth is about to be killed. There's an emergency in the transporter room and Kirk and Scotty run to see what's going on. And we see transporter chief Janice Rand. Hey, she was there all along, possibly. Guess so. Very reasonable hair. They try to abort the transport, but it's too late. There's this creepy otherworldly scream as the transporter goes wrong. These people half materialize all squished up. Rand turns away because she's a woman. (laughs) Although it's probably weird that the others don't turn away. (laughs) Yes. It was science officer Commander Sonic and another officer who died in this transporter accident. We're going to need another Vulcan. Kirk says there was nothing he could have done, Rand. It wasn't your fault. To which her reply should have been, I know. (laughs) Now you're saying that it wasn't my fault. I'm thinking you think it was. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe somebody shouldn't be rushing a ship out of dry dock when it's not finished yet. He's good at doing that one. He's done that before, hasn't he? Oh, so condescending. the blame. (laughs) So Kirk finds Decker again and he tells him what happened to Sonic and that he'll need Decker to be the new science officer. And he's really throwing his weight around here. You can't just become the science officer. That's a highly skilled job only Spock can do, except every time he goes down to a planet. (laughs) Maybe this guy had the role before. Is that a promotion structure possibility? Well, the science officer is just the person that's in charge of the science department on the ship. It's more administrative than actual science work. But he's always coming up with the solution. In Star Trek, the science officer seems to be doing the science as opposed to administrating over other people that would be doing the science. Mm -hmm. Because from a narrative standpoint, it's just much more interesting to have Spock actually do all the stuff than have a staff that he manages that do all the stuff. So the captain could do the science officer's job. 
Are you saying? No, because he should be captaining the ship. If he wasn't, as in this situation, he would be competent to do the science officer's role. Sure. Okay. You would want somebody that knows how to manage scientists. So I don't know. Does Decker know how to do that? He seems to know a lot well, about engineering because he's down so. down there kicking butt. And he's an all-rounder. There's a huge space, which is the Enterprise Rec Room, mm. which seems way too big. Almost like a hangar or something. So it's not very efficient. No. <laughs> and it's not very cozy. So Kirk is briefing what seems to be a majority of the crew when they get a transmission from the listening post. The cloud has gotten to them now and it's huge and it seems to have some kind of vessel at the center of it. Mm. They say they tried to communicate with the vessel, but they got no response and they scanned it, but they're worried that their scans might have been seen as hostile. And then we see them being destroyed just as the Klingon ships were destroyed. That kind of weird electric beam thing oh, that yeah. breaks them down. The crew now sees how important this mission is and they all jump to duty. Right, so this is the galvanizing event. Back on the bridge, we get yet another character, Ilea. She's very pretty, but totally bald. Yeah, it's not a bald cap either. You could tell, couldn't you? Yeah. That it was a real head. She shaved her hair. And the actress was concerned it might not grow back properly. So they tried to ensure her hair but it turned out to be too expensive. <laughs> so she went to a Beverly Hills salon where they prescribed six facials and scalp treatments throughout the course of filming, plus tedious instructions for various hair products. It grew back fine, of course. <laughs> she has banging eyebrows, though. She those does. are left on. Yes. Uh, Decker is happy to see her and she, him. They seem to have had a romantic relationship when he was stationed on her home planet. She says her oath of celibacy is on record. <laughs> what? In front of everyone. Did she take her oath after he left? Why? Well, I had to look this one up. She is Delton, and this is from a Memory Alpha. An oath of celibacy was a promise that Deltons were obliged to swear to upon service in Starfleet, oh. stating that they would not take advantage of any other non-Delton crewmates. Oh, take advantage. This was necessary because Deltons were highly sexualized species and viewed humans as immature in this regard. Goodness, that seems to need a lot of unpacking. Will this come up in more detail in future films? No. Oh, no. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. This has Ronberry written all over it. Uh, to are me. they creeps, though, who would take advantage of a less mature species? Or are they just incredibly sexually attractive I, and well, draw people to them? They are telepathic. Mm. So maybe they can telepathically get people really turned on. And so they've got to not do that. I don't oh, know. Interesting. This is all it said about them. I guess they couldn't mention all that stuff because it'd affect the rating. Sure. Ilea and Decker were characters from Star Trek Phase 2. Uh. She and other Deltons are telepaths and almost everything with her people was sex-oriented. Mm, sounds odd. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Jean Roundberry for you. She's played by the actress Persis Kambata. She was an Indian actress and model. She was the first Indian citizen to present an Academy Award. Nice. She had a short-lived acting career in the U.S., and then she moved back to India to do some TV there. She had heart problems her whole life and had a fatal heart attack in 1998. She was only 49 years old. Aww. O'Hara tells Kirk that one of the crew coming over is being problematic about the transporter. McCoy. <laughs> Kirk goes down to the transporter room. The new people say that the guy who wouldn't beam over was being all sketchy and said something about first seeing how it scrambled our molecules. <laughs> Kirk knows this is McCoy and he's finally beamed over. He's rocking a full face bush and a huge 70s medallion with an open collar. He looks the most 70s out of everyone here. He sure here. does. He's pissed off at Kirk for forcing him into this mission. But Kirk explains he needs him 
badly. <laughs> <laughs> then McCoy softens and just complains that Chapel is now a medical doctor and he doesn't want to have to argue with her about every diagnosis, so he needs a nurse. <laughs> then he goes off to shave. <laughs> the Enterprise is about to leave dry dock. Decker and Scotty both warn Kirk about the ship not being ready, but Kirk says they've got no choice. They've got to do this. Oh, this sounds dangerous. So they jump to warp, but the warp imbalance... I, I don't know exactly what that means, creates a wormhole and they are trapped inside of it. I had no idea what was going on at this point. It's a bizarre effect and it goes on forever. Yeah. Everyone's being thrown around. On the view screen, we see some kind of webish. It's got trails on it. Trails. Yeah. The sound is all muffled and warped. The lights are distorting everyone's faces and visuals. It creates a feeling of Kirk's anxiety, effectively, I thought, mm -hmm. as he struggles to issue orders. There is an asteroid that has also been pulled inside of this wormhole, and it looks like it's going to collide with the Enterprise. Kirk orders phasers, but Decker says no, and he goes over to Chekhov and totally gets into space and says, use photon torpedoes. Mm. Chekhov obeys that order and blows up the asteroid, knocking them out of the wormhole. Oh, wow. It worked, but somebody's going to get it. Yeah, Kirk is pissed that Decker is being uppity and takes Decker down to his room. Bones tags along. <laughs> Why? For the gossip. Well, yeah, I think he's kind of an advisor for mm. Kirk here. That's his whole r role. You yeah. Know? So Decker explains that the phasers wouldn't have worked because of an issue with the redesign. And Kirk comes correct and says Decker saved the ship, but feels that Decker is competing with him. So Decker voices his concern about Kirk's unfamiliarity with the ship and that it may cost them not only the mission, but Earth's survival. Ouch, yeah. Kirk lightens a bit and says, nurse made me through these difficulties. <laughs> and Decker seems to soften a bit as well. Bit of flattery there to get him on his side. Yeah. Why is Kirk in command again, though? We just need him for the strategy poker type stuff, don't we? Not the traveling there bit. Man, that's one of my issues with Star Trek. Like, the guy who's the captain of the ship should not be the diplomat. Kirk, yeah. in the original series, is the like the chief negotiator and diplomat. Like, yeah. those are two totally different jobs. Like, and he's great at that, but he's so irresponsible. He doesn't know this ship at all. Yeah. It's been completely redesigned. Yes. This guy, Decker, he knows it. Let him get us there. But Decker has not been out and dealt with, like, mm. ultra-intelligent beings. Untried. He's totally untried. Yeah. So I can understand why you would want Kirk out there, because he knows. We need Kirk, but can't Decker just do the journey bit? Well, there you go. But who's, in, who's in charge? When you get there, take over. But who's in charge? I know, it's hard. It's yeah. very hard. It's, it's, it's complicated. Decker runs into Ilea in the corridor, and we get that there is still some unresolved feelings between the two. Seems that he left without saying goodbye, and she's a little miffed about that, but he says if he had to say goodbye, he never would have left. Mm -hmm. And this, she kind of seems to understand. It's like Chekhov and that hippie from the Academy. <laughs> I do. In Kirk's quarters, McCoy and Kirk are having a heart-to-heart. -heart. McCoy axes Kirk's conscience again. Make your point, Doctor. The point, Captain, is that it's you who's competing. You ram getting this command on Starfleet's throat. You've used this emergency to get the Enterprise back. And I intend to keep her, is that what you're saying? Yes. It's an obsession. An obsession that can bind you to far more immediate and critical responsibilities. Your reaction to Decker is an example, Jim. He's right. Yeah, this mm. is really nailing it. He listens to him, though. He does. They get interrupted by Uhura. A Starfleet registered shuttle is approaching and delivering someone. Chekhov goes to handle the situation and it's Spock! <laughs> Finally! <laughs> Spock comes to the bridge and everyone's glad to see him, but he's really emotionless. Completely ice cold. He's gone full Vulcan mm -hmm. and everyone's a little weirded out by this. But Spock moves to the science station saying he can sort out the engine problems. 
McCoy and Dr. Chapel, now with dark hair, mm-hmm. come up to say hello to Spock, but nothing. Spock says, with permission, I'd like to go to engineering to see what I can do. Kirk says, sure, and Spock leaves. Some time passes and Spock sorts out the engine imbalance and they have full warp capacity. He can do better than Scotty on the engines. Ludicrous. <laughs> and he's been away for ages. <laughs> Maybe it's with some of the basic fundamental science of it and not the actual mechanical nature of the engines. Mm. Like it's getting the chemical mix right. And that's something that needs to be determined by scientists. I don't know. (laughs) Now that they have warp speed, they're off to the cloud. Kirk and Spock and McCoy meet up in the officer's lounge. Spock explains about his culinary training on Vulcan and that he left to come help them. Spock describes having sensed a consciousness of an intruder, a mind more powerful than any he's ever sensed. Does that pay off? I say no. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does, and we'll we'll talk about that later. It also has perfectly logical thought patterns. Spock thinks this thing might hold the answers for his quest to become purely logical. Oh, I didn't catch that. Boy, I can't believe you missed that, because (laughs) there's a whole subplot to this where Kirk and McCoy are like, can we trust Spock? And McCoy says, can we trust anybody? Oh, right, yeah. Because Hmm. Spock's goals now seem to be... not about Starfleet and about saving Earth. It's about him achieving his uh, pure logical. Okay, yeah. Which I think is kind of a weak. Yeah, Spock would never Spock would never do anything like that. And that's what Kirk says. He would never betray us. Yeah. And that's why. But he is very different now. He is different. Uhura calls them up and says that they have a visual on the cloud. The cloud scans the ship, but Kirk orders them not to scan for fear that it might be seen as aggressive. Uhura transmits full friendship messages on all frequencies, but it does not respond. Friendship messages. Cute. (laughs) Decker suggests raising the shields, but Kirk also feels that might seem aggressive. Spock says the cloud has an energy output of thousands of starships. That's not very efficient, is it? Spock zones out and Kirk notices. Spock explains he's been mentally in touch with the thing. At least we have a precedent for that nonsense. With the melding with the cloud thing before. It's confused. It's reached out to the Enterprise, but they haven't responded. While they try and figure out what's going on, the cloud shoots out a plasma beam which overloads the system. Chekhov gets burned on his hand badly. Lots of screaming. Get to first aid quick. And they should have a kit on the bridge, Chris. Yeah, they should. The bolt disappears. Scotty says deflector power is down 70% and another jot like that will destroy the Enterprise. Chapel comes to the bridge, but Ilya uses her psychic powers to stop Chekhov from feeling the pain while Dr. Chapel patches him up. It looks like a freeze gun she's using. Yeah. Spock is able to confirm the alien was trying to communicate. It sent a message at a ultra high frequency and at a high speed that only lasted a millisecond. Spock is able to program the computer to match its speed. Another beam is sent out, but Spock is able to get his message out in time and it cancels the attack. Ah, well done, Spock. Kirk asks Spock and Decker what they think he should do. And Spock says, go into the cloud. And Decker says, hang back. Kirk goes with Spock. Hmm. They get through the cloud layers and into what looks like a massive spaceship, like thousands of times bigger than the Enterprise. Like a whole world with pockets of lights below them. Spock says that the ship has a force field more powerful than the Earth's sun. Uhura tries to send info to Starfleet, but the cloud bounces the message back to them. Mm. So Kirk orders Sulu to fly along the ship, only about 500 meters above it. Everyone thinks Kirk's giving dodgy commands, but they obey. When they get into position, another bolt comes from the alien ship, this time making some kind of living pillar of electricity. Yeah, it's vertically on the bridge, crackling and traveling around. The crew covers their ears and shields their eyes, so it must be very powerful. I enjoyed Shatner covering one eye and one ear, then both eyes, then both ears, (laughs) (laughs) etc, etc, etc. 
Uh, it begins to access their computers, but Spock smashes the console to stop it. So badass. It zaps Spock so hard he goes flying through the air, and then it scans Ilea. And Spock kind of tries to save her, but it zaps him. Yes, it zaps her some more, but then Ilea and the electric column suddenly disappear, and everything's quiet on the bridge again. Mm. Decker is ticked. An alarm goes off and they are caught in a tractor beam. Decker suggests shooting at it because maybe it's weak where the tractor beam is coming from. Mm. But Spock says that it would be futile. They are pulled into a huge, a huge chamber. Yeah. The scale of this movie is very big oh, yeah. and everything looks amazing. I can't believe this was done in the late 70s because it just yeah. looks really good. Mm. Maybe the effects were enhanced in the director's cut that we saw. Yeah, but that'd be a shame if it's not authentic then. But it, it just feels real. Decker wonders why they weren't destroyed like everybody else was. And Spock thinks that the aliens are curious. The tractor beam is taken off and then suddenly an alarm goes off. There is an intruder on board, but who is it? We'll have to wait until our next episode to find out. And with that, I'm Rachel Lackett. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to... Rachel watches Star Trek, the movies. Rachel watches Star Trek.